do want to just do a couple of bits of uh, housekeeping here as I uh, begin. Uh, I am going to be gone the next uh, couple of weeks. I'll be down in Houston next weekend. Uh, the church that uh, we used to, I used to work with was overseeing congregation while we worked in New Guinea is uh, having their 75th um, anniversary. And so our family will be down there participating and sharing uh, in that. Uh, then the following weekend I'll be gone uh, to Nashville. I'll be graduating. Um, and so that will be a nice, a nice thing. I do want to thank uh, the congregation for the, the support uh, that you guys have shown as I've uh, gone through the, the program. It's been a blessing to me on a lot of fronts, and Lord willing is a blessing to you as well. Uh, I did have an elder uh, who said, you need to remind people that this degree was not about you getting somewhere else. Uh, so no, Craig is not, as I said at the beginning, intending to go anywhere, um, but simply uh, just blessed to be able to study God's Word and to do that alongside with uh, those of you. If you're visiting, uh, please be opening your Bibles to Mark 12. We're thankful to have you here. We've been going through Mark, and we're going to continue that journey together uh, this morning. The year was 1995, and a woman had just finished uh, clicking away on her typewriter and finished a manuscript of a book that she thought was good. So she worked diligently and finally found Christopher Little, who agreed to serve as her literary agent as she was going to get this book published. So they contacted 12 publishing houses. All 12 of them said, thank you, but no thank you. She waited over a year until finally Bloomsbury, a publishing house in London, agreed that they would print her book. But they didn't have very high hopes for it and said, don't quit your day job. Nobody makes money selling children's books. The author, in case you're wondering, is J.K. Rowling. The book was called Harry Potter. It's part of a series that has now sold over 400 million copies and made over $15 billion. And if you were one of those 12 publishing houses that passed over the book, I bet you wish you had a second chance. Because what was rejected came to be something much more significant than what you ever anticipated. Our sermon this morning will be an exploration of one who was himself passed over. He was rejected as insignificant and as inconsequential. And then in the end, God vindicated his son. See, we have, as we begin moving into our text in Mark 12, in Mark chapter 11, in the 27th verse, we have a discussion that happens between the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, who ask, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave this authority to do them? Have you ever seen a parent-child interaction where despite the fact that one person has official authority, it seems like the younger child may be in fact having all the authority? I remember an occasion where I had actually just that very day had, had taught about discipline and about uh, enforcing boundaries with kids, and that afternoon we were in New Guinea, and I was visiting with one of the gentlemen who had been there, and his son kept getting in the middle of the conversation and interrupting it, and I was quite proud when he got up and he drew a line in the sand. We were sitting outside, and he said to his son, you shall not pass this line. 
If you do, you are going to get in trouble. And you know what that son did? He looked down at that line. He looked up at dad and he took a little step closer. He looked down at that line, looked up at dad, took another step closer. Eventually he crossed over the line and I wondered what dad would do. And what dad did was he got up and he cleared that line and he drew another line even closer and said, if you cross this line. Sometimes those who we think have authority, turns out they don't quite have authority. It's very clear that these, these leaders of Jerusalem have formal authority. And yet, as this dialogue goes, we come to find they might not have the authority they think they have. And one who does not have any formal authority may, in fact, have all the authority. You see, Jesus and the leaders seem to agree on one thing when it comes to authority. It must be given. They know who gave them authority, and they are wondering, who was it that gave Jesus his authority? And Jesus, in his response, indicates that there are two types of authority. The first is an authority that comes from human origin. It's what we could call the right to exercise power over. Our dictionaries tells us that authority is the power or right to give orders, to make decisions, and to enforce obedience. Authority that comes from human origin is much like the old western movies where one character says to the other, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. And whoever enforces the other to leave, usually by shooting the other, he now stands as the sole authority. Self-preservation is what one finds at the heart of this because for you to have authority means you have to now steal or subjugate my authority. And these leaders want to keep their authority. They can point to a direct chain of command where they have received and been appointed to their positions. And what Jesus did in the temple as he tossed over those tables was to challenge their authority. And when you are, have human authority and it is threatened, what do you do? You do exactly what authority dictates. You give orders, you make decisions, and you enforce those orders. And that's why their preferred course of action is to look for a way to kill him. Because in their opinion, this town ain't big enough for the two of them. And yet Jesus speaks of a second kind of authority, authority that he says comes from heaven or that comes from above. We could call this the authority to exercise power under others. You see, there is clarity about who dictates your conduct, and yet you serve under them. This kind of authority we would see would be like making the choice to become like a child. It would be like choosing to be last and choosing to be the least of all. Instead of it being like the Western movies where it's kill or be killed, it's now self-giving love that drives the exchange. Actions are determined by what God wills for an individual and, and what one thinks is necessary for the sake of the other. And so with this kind of authority, when one is slapped on the one cheek, what will they do? They will turn to the other also. Jesus indirectly affirms his authority from heaven in two ways. First of all, if you look at the dialogue between Jesus and these leaders, he is in complete control. He determines when the conversation will happen. He will decide what he will and what he will not answer. And so his behavior affirms the fact that he clearly is in control of that conversation. 
But the second thing is Jesus connects his ministry with that of John the Baptist. And John's authority came from above. And as John baptizes Jesus, the Spirit descends on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven says, You are my beloved Son, and with you I am well pleased. Jesus has authority from above. And as we get into the text in Mark chapter 12, we have an expectation, I assume, of how he will use his authority. Because we tend to know of authority in only one way. That is authority that comes from human origin. And when your authority is challenged, what will you do? You will use your authority to force and enforce others to your way. But let's begin by seeing what happens in this parable. We'll first of all look at what God's way of responding to rebellion against his authority. And as the text begins, we know that there is an owner, which it will become clear is God himself, and that owner invests himself in the vineyard. He is planting, he is putting up a fence, he is digging a pit, and he is building a watchtower. He then leases the land with an expectation that when it begins to produce, he will come and take his portion or his share of that vineyard. And so when that time and that season comes, he sends one of his own, one of his slaves, to go and to collect what is due him. And the fact that he sends shows his authority. The fact that he has those in his household shows his authority. And he sends them there. But what happens? But they seized him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And I suspect... If this was your parable, if this was your story and you knew of only authority that comes from human origin, you would have a game plan set up for how you would respond to this. You would have done likely what was legally allowed. What would you do if you did not receive your due and you were hurt as a result about it? How far would you go to enforce your own self Preservation. So we would expect that the master called up a few favors. He rounded up 500 men with swords and chariots and killed every last one of them dead. The end. And yet, is that how the parable goes? There is then a second event. And again, he sent another slave to them. And this one they beat over the head and they insulted Again, at the cost of the landowner who sends at his own expense one of his own people. And then he sent another. And that one they killed. And so it was with many others. Some they beat and others they killed. I want you to imagine that this landowner has a board of directors. And after these three events, what do you assume will be the decision about what needs to happen here? I can just overhear these words coming out of that meeting. Send them a message. Stick up for ourselves. Fight for what's rightfully ours. The knockout punch. And yet we wonder what happens and what decision the landowner makes. He still had one other a beloved son. And finally, as of last resort, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. Why would he do that? They've shown themselves to be negligent, rebellious, irresponsible. 
No, you don't take a risk with your beloved, with people who don't deserve your beloved. Mark, as he uses the word finally, he is conveying a sense that this is the final act. This is the final option. That if this plan does not work, the father himself, the owner, will find himself bankrupt. There is no plan D or E after this. There is no one else to send. And how many of you would risk it all for these people who have shown themselves not as worthy people? And so the question becomes, why would he do it? Why would he send that last beloved son? He is inviting a response by displaying his self-giving love. He hopes that they will see his long-suffering pursuit of them. And that his activity will warm or will soften their hearts. Because one thing that a law can do is it can demand obedience. But it cannot beckon one's heart. And so the only opportunity this owner has to bring about true repentance in this people is to give them what is most precious. So God tries to woo us to Him, not by command, not by demand, by showing us what self-giving love looks like. And the landowner sends his most precious gift at a tremendous personal risk. A risk that we should call undeserved, a risk that we should call unnecessary, a risk that we should call unwise and unadvisable. A risk that leads one commentator to say of the grace of the landowner, this is the blessed idiocy of grace. Only an idiot would do this sort of thing. And what did they do? This last and final gift. And they seized him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And so then Jesus asks, what will the landowner do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. See, while the landowner exempts